In this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be talking about lessons from the happiest man on earth. It sounds like one thing, but you'll be surprised at what you hear. Stay tuned. In a world of incompetent bosses, micromanagers, and petty tyrants, one management professor claims that he can help you become the kind of leader that you would want to follow. You are listening to The Leadersmith. Now, here is your host, Darren Gertis. Okay, so over the last week or so, I uh, read a book called The Happiest Man on Earth. I read it twice within just a few days. Now, I, I usually don't do that, but the book was fantastic. And there were so many lessons. And again, usually I'm, I'm focused very squarely on leadership lessons. Here, some of the lessons are a little bit more expansive, but they apply to leaders. And so I thought, you know what, this would be great. Uh, I urge you to go get the book. I'll leave the link to the book below. Um, and, you know, there's he has a TED Talk. I'll leave a link to that as well. Um, okay, so the, the, the gentleman's name is Eddie Jaku. Jaku, I don't know how I'm pronouncing it. J-A-K-U. Uh, he's born in Leipzig, Germany. Uh, and uh, this was before World War II. And he considers himself to be a German first and Jewish second. And you can already see where this is going now. Okay, so he's proud of being a German and a citizen of Leipzig because of all the uh, cultural uh, background. And and this is just before World War II and everything changes. Um, when he was uh, at his bar mitzvah, uh, you know, he, he couldn't do his bar mitzvah at the main synagogue because the anti-Semitism was already starting to be somewhat pronounced. And the rabbi at that synagogue, here's the first lesson, was very smart. That rabbi was seeing things coming and uh, started, he rented out a flat below the synagogue, uh, a flat, an apartment below the synagogue to the son of a SS man, or, or sorry, a man who had a son in the SS. Uh, and so that synagogue wasn't burned when a lot of other Jewish establishments were burned because it would have affected him. So he, it was just an interesting first story. Um, so he began to study as an engineer, Eddie. Uh, his father was pushing him to it. Um, you know, like, look, you got to go get your education. You got to get your education. You got to get your education. And he's like, okay, you know, I'll get my education. But kids, uh, young people don't tend to see the value of education like older people do. Um, <laughs> and so he's disenrolled because he's Jewish. And so his father gets him a uh, false ID and sends him off, uh, I don't know, five, nine hours, something like that away uh, to the other side of the country, essentially, in order to get his education at a good school where he could get his degree in some kind of engineering and mechanical kind of ability. Okay, so he sent away. And so now five years, he's there at this school, gets his degree, he graduates, he visits home, and he's attacked uh, in his own house by Nazis who are dragging him out of the out of his house, burning his house. So they, they actually put him in a zoo temporarily as a holding pen before they ship him off to Buchenwald prison. He's brutally beaten. Uh, he's in this concentration camp. Nazis would do terrible things to these people, not just beating, but I mean, as a, almost a sick joke, uh, allow a few hundred of them to run out and then just mow them down and then ship them home saying they, they tried to escape. Um, I mean, just all kinds of sadistic stuff. Um, but 
while he was there, one of the guards, one of the SS guards, was shocked to see him. And he knew him as Walter, which was his fake ID at this engineering school, not as Eddie, the Jew, who was actually there under a false ID. So this former friend of Eddie's uh, thought he was, you know, he felt compassion for him. And he uh, arranged to get him transferred to another facility as a machinist. Well, as he's being transferred, he uses this opportunity to try to escape out of Germany um, to Belgium. Now, uh, they escape first through the Netherlands and then try to get to Belgium. As he's escaping, uh, Eddie's, Eddie and his father are trying to escape. Uh, his father had arranged to have... Um, a human smuggler help him get across the border and as they're trying to escape uh they're just as the human smuggler had predicted at a certain point a uh a military vehicle will pass they'll have these floodlights and you have so much time to get across you know the road to the other side and then just keep going once you get into the netherlands well his father, he, he makes it across to the other side, and his father was helping some woman trying to get get her across as well, and was getting her across, but then was spotted by the, uh, the light, the spotlight, and rather than put everybody else in danger, he ran the other way. He gets caught, he gets beat up, but he is he has not put the group in danger, and that's just such a fascinating um, lesson of leadership in and of itself. That, you know, to leadership is about putting other people ahead of yourself. And his father is really a, an amazing figure throughout this whole story. Okay, so back to the story. Uh, they rent a hotel room. His father eventually catches up to him there. Um, while they're there, the, some, uh, they call home to try to get their mother and sister to come over. The mother and sister were caught by the Nazis. And he's really, you know, like uh, if they say, if you go home, then we will let you, uh, we'll let your mom go. And her, the mom saying, no, don't do it. And it's, you know, beaten up pretty severely and will never look quite the same again. And eventually they, they get caught, um, they get uh, caught up together. I don't mean caught by the Nazis. I mean, they actually reunite in Belgium uh, and they're hiding out in Belgium. Well, they're hiding out in Belgium for some time. And in Belgium, Eddie gets arrested for being a German. <laughs> Okay, so the Belgians don't want Germans either because of what's going on in Germany, and he, so he can't win. He's he's uh, uh, was sent to uh, Buchenwald uh, for being a Jew, and now he is sent to back to Ger uh, uh, He's sent to a prison camp in Belgium for being German, and <laughs> it's just it's it's a terrible uh, thing with his identity. I mean, he just he just can't win one way or another. Okay, so but this camp in Belgium is easy peasy compared to what he experienced in Buchenwald. Um, now, the Belgian authorities are much kinder. They're gentler. They're not beating people up for the sake of beating people up. They're just, they don't want Germans there for obvious reasons. Uh, they do let him go teach university students. He has his education and he says, look, um, let me teach your university students mechanical engineering. I mean, it was a need. And so they allowed him to do that. While he's there, his friend from Buchenwald, Kurt, shows up in the same camp and Kurt will focus, uh, will come back into the story a little bit later. All right. So he's doing what he's doing for a number of months in Belgium. He's technically under some kind of arrest, but at the same time, he has the freedom to go teach his lectures at the university and, uh, and life's not that bad comparatively. 
1940, however, the Germans invaded Belgium. And when they do, he feels like, uh-oh, I've got to get out of Dodge again. So he flees again. He flees to France. And so now he's going, okay, if I can make it to France, I can get across into England. But by the time he gets to Dunkirk, and that name, if you have historical understanding, should ring some bells. Dunkirk? Yeah, that Dunkirk. And he got to Dunkirk just as the French and English are trying to evacuate Dunkirk, trying to get back to England to safety while uh, the Germans are just pounding them into oblivion. He can't get anyone to take him on a ship because, of course, soldiers have to be prioritized. So he decides to head south. He figures, if I can't get across to England, maybe I can get out through the Mediterranean. So he heads directly south to France, and he talks about how kind people were. Because all along the way, he never had to beg or ask for food. The locals in France knew what was going on and knew what he was trying to, that he was trying to get out of France and that his, his days were limited unless he could get out. So they would be giving him food and drink and shelter all along the way. But somewhere along the way, a woman turns him in as a German and uh, the Vichy government, which was a German puppet regime, uh, was, uh, you know, rounded these ex-Germans up. And um, Hitler was very upset about these German Jews that had fled and he wanted to exterminate them, demanded that they were sent back to Germany. So the French head of state, uh, this puppet regime uh, president sent them back. At this time, he's now going to be sent to Auschwitz. So he was already in Buchenwald, and now he's being sent to Auschwitz. So he gets on a train, and as he's on the train, he, he finds out about how far it is to Auschwitz. He has about nine hours. So with his nine hours in mind, he swipes the tools from the front of the engineer's toolkit on a train. He knew that they would always have them, and so he had some screwdrivers and some other tools. Um, while he's on that that train trip, that nine hour train trip, he unscrews all the chips away and unscrews the floorboards and slips out of the train while it's running. Now picture this, it's like something out of a movie. He slips onto the train tracks themselves and the train rolls over him. He's unharmed. Uh, it's pretty gutsy, but he didn't wind up in Auschwitz as a consequence. Uh, and uh, that's a very narrow escape, and there's no pun intended. There was not a lot of margin because things could have gone very badly. Like, if he had slipped down into it and bounced up, that would have been all over. Okay, so he heads back towards Brussels, traveling slowly, staying out of Dodge, avoiding people, and he reconnects with his family. Now, at this point, he's hiding in an attic of a boarding house. So a boarding house normally has people in there, but his family is laying very low. They're Jewish. They even look somewhat Jewish. And so they have to lay low. It's not Nazi-occupied, but they're in this attic, and he'll come out at night. At night, he will barter uh, for food by doing this. He has these tools, this 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 human capital of the, his... Uh, understanding of how to fix machines. And so he barters that for cigarettes and then barters the cigarettes for food. And <laughs> it's not an easy way of doing things. He'd get up and slip out in the, at, while it's dark and come back before it's dark. And that's how he would arrange things. Didn't eat meat for over a year <laughs> and was just hiding the entire time, but it worked out for some time. Okay. So um, this is a bad scene. The Nazis are occupying. They they has to lay low, but um, and they're they're trying to find Jews, round them up, and send them off to concentration camps. When some Jewish parents, uh, a few doors down, are taken away, they adopt the kids and and take them into the fold and and hide them in the attic with them and essentially treated them like they were adopted. 
Um, eventually, the Nazis show up and they take his family away. He um, is taken, his sister's taken, his mother and father are taken, and they're sent to Auschwitz. Uh, and this time, they're actually, they actually get to Auschwitz. Um, it took them uh, nine, ten days, something like that. I think it was nine days, eight nights, nine days by train. And the way that the Germans did this was with this like brutal efficiency. Once they had 1,500 Jews, they would send 10 boxcars by train, 150 in each boxcar, uh, to Auschwitz. It would, again, be a nine-day trip. There's no food. There's little water. There's uh, They have to essentially stand almost the whole time because there's not enough room really to sit down. They could kneel, but that's about all that they could do. No food, little water, and they had one 44-gallon drum of water for the trip for 150 people for nine days. Now, I don't know if you can get that picture in your head, but that's not a lot of water. There was another drum as a toilet, which means that there's no privacy for man, woman, and child over those nine days that it was there. Now, his father... His father is such a brilliant example of leadership. His father took charge. He produced a collapsible cup, a Swiss army knife, and a sheet of paper. He divides that paper into 150 squares. Everyone is going to get two cups of water, he says, for um, every day of the trip. Everyone will get two cups of water. Um, and so what they'll do is they get a piece of paper, and when they returned it, they'll turn in their piece of paper. When they come back in the evening, they get their second cup of water, and they get their piece of paper back, and they have to hold on to it. And he made it very clear. Look, you lose your piece of paper, you get no more water. That's, I mean, we have to be very, very careful because they're not going to give us any more, and they had to ration it. Again, the uh, toilet bucket filled over this nine days, as you can imagine, this, this gallon drum of human waste, but the water runs out, uh, as you can also imagine. In the other cars, he's talking about people crying out, my children are thirsty, my gold ring for water, and many of them are dying. By the time they arrive, as many as 60 of the 150 in most of the cars die. That's about 40% of the passengers in most of the other cars die. In his car, that his, where his dad set up the system, only two people died thanks to his father. Now, it's February of 1944. Joseph Mengele is the angel of death. He is one of the most brutal villains in all of human history. Joseph Mengele is separating people as they're coming in. You to the left line, you to the right line, you to the left line. And on the one side, if you're separated on one side, you're going to be worked to death. And the other side, you're off to the gas chambers. So Eddie and his father are separated. And Eddie slips into the other line. And he's almost on the trucks going to the one direction with his father. And a guard sees him and sends him back which was a good thing for Eddie because his he was told that his father was going on a truck because he was old and, you know, Eddie was going to walk. And that's what the guard tells him. Turns out his father was sent directly to the gas chamber and that's almost where he went. He found that this out only days later and he never got to say goodbye. And here's one of the lessons that uh, Eddie says in the book and it's it's very powerful. He never said he got to say goodbye um, to his father or his mother. Uh, and he said this, look, stop whatever you're doing. Stop right now, whatever it is, call your mother. And if she's alive, tell her how much you love her. Cause I never got a chance to please do that for me. So they're locked in this, uh, cramped room for three days. Uh, and, and many people are, you know, they're, they're waiting to be processed. Many people die in the process. The Germans would, you know, 
play kind of mean spirited games on them to you know, make them trample each other and panic. There's no light. It's, it's all complete darkness. And so, uh, he survives that. And, and by staying in a corner with a couple of other friends, making sure that they just rotate and stay in that corner by themselves so that they weren't trampled because he'd seen this kind of thing done before in Buchenwald. Anyway, he's taken to a room where he's branded with a tattoo. His number was 172338, and that's on his arm for the rest of his life. Everything is taken away from him, including his human dignity. Everything is stripped away. And, uh, and he's speculating, he's thinking, like, how could Hitler do this? How, how could he create such hate in his society that he has old friends turn, turn into enemies? Because remember, he was as pro-German as they make him before Hitler comes to power. And then he's this victim all of a sudden. At any rate, he sleeps on cold planks. He's there, the prisoners there are forced to sleep naked. As if this wasn't uh, there, uh, so much indignity already. They're forced to sleep naked on the theory that if you are naked, you can't really escape. Even if you could escape, you can't get very far because you're going to shiver to death. Uh, at Auschwitz, I mean, it's often 20 below. Okay, so they're forced to sleep on cold planks and sleep naked. Uh, they sleep 10 to a pack deep uh, on these cold planks. And, and very often, those on the outside would even freeze to death and just be, you know, uh, removed in the morning. So they, every day they had to go to work. And the idea here was that you're either exterminated, sent to the gas chamber, or you're worked to death. And so they're marched under guard. And if they fell on the side because they were too weak, they're immediately shot. He said the moment that you're unable to work, you'd be killed. That's the way it worked. And that's, that was the intention. That was the way that things were designed. Now, he would make things because of his education, because of his mechanical ability. He would make things for other prisoners. It was kind of like a little black market operation. And, and he could get things because uh, he made a little machine that could you know, boil potatoes. And he would charge one potatoes to boil four potatoes. If you bring me five, you'll get four, I'll get one. And that's, you know, I'll make sure it happens. You can't eat potatoes raw. But again, this could be a good source of substance. And every calorie had to count. People would go, sometimes they were so distraught being here because they were so dehumanized, they would go to the wire. That was a phrase that meant that they would commit suicide by going to the electric fence and touching it so that they would, it would kill them rather than letting the Nazis kill them. It's, it's that, that kind of terrible condition. And, you know, it's hard to imagine a picture of a system that's more designed to be destructive of human humanness than what the Nazis did to, in, to the Jews in the concentration camp. But he said, you know, one thing that saved him was friendship, was love. He had a friend, and this wasn't weird, it was just a, a friend, okay? Uh, a friend named Kurt. And Kurt was a friend that he knew in Buchenwald, and then they were out, and then they were both wound up in Auschwitz again together. And he said nothing was more important than this friendship. It was enough to keep him going. He said that they looked after each other all the time. And I'm going to quote now. He said, quote, I would not be here today without Kurt. Thanks to my friend, I survived. We looked after each other. When one of us was injured or too sick to work, the other would find food and help the other. The average survival time of a prisoner in Auschwitz was seven months. Without Kurt, I wouldn't have survived half that long. And then again, he said this, this is the most important thing that I have ever learned. The greatest thing that you will ever do is be loved by another person. Wow. And, you know, look, again, this was life or death, literally. And when he's saying loved by another person, he wasn't saying anything odd or, or 
funny he was saying to be cared for by another human being and to care for another human being because it takes your eyes off you and your plight and puts it on like that other person becomes your world and it becomes a support system okay so let me continue the story so he's he's placed on different um uh, work crews. He's at one point he's placed on a coal mining detail, and he's sent to this new uh, a new work de detail. After that, because of his mechanical skills um, as an engineer, at one point he is uh, almost sent to the gas chamber. Actually, uh, on three different occasions he was sent to the line for the gas chamber, and he's pulled out of the ranks because of his education. Because like somebody noticed, wait a minute, he has these special skills. We need him to go do X, Y, and Z. And so and he's, he's just again and again thankful to his father for uh, pushing him to complete his education. So he's put on another detail where he has to fix machines in a factory. This factory is creating Zyklon B, which is used for uh, poisonous gas. And uh, the prisoners there are, are being worked to death, uh, exterminated through labor. He is wearing a sign around his neck that essentially says that uh, if anything happens to these pipes, he is to be executed. The, the pipes that are creating the Zyklon because it could poison people in there, including the guards. So he's in charge of this, these machines and these pipes, and there are more than 200 of these uh, machines or pipes around uh, within this organization. And like, if anything happens, so he, he gets smart. He thinks, okay, I'm gonna create a whistle, and he manufactures little whistles, and creates whistles for each of the factory workers so that if they see anything, any irregularities, anything leaking, or any of the pressure gauges going down, he can alert them immediately in order to take care of it. Along the way, he finds out that his sister is at Auschwitz as well, and she's alive and he's happy, but at the same time, she looks nothing like her former self. She's hollowed out, she's miserable, she's just a skeleton, and he can't even talk to her because that puts her in danger. He can only kind of give a, a look here and there and try to look out for her, but he can't do anything because, again, making that connection would, would draw attention to her that could put her life in danger. At one point, I mean, he's he's beaten up on several occasions by the Nazi guards. One guard hits him on the head with a rock. Another later on is going to hit him with the butt of a rifle. And I mean, he's going to have migraines from that point forward. He is, um, uh, oh man, <laughs> he's brought to, after being hit on the head with a rock, he's brought to a neurosurgeon um, because the guard actually recognizes that he's valuable and doesn't want to get in trouble because he realizes that he's in charge of, you know, some things. Uh, and when he's brought to the neurosurgeon, he mentions something about one of the machines and the neurosurgeon's kind of like, what, what's, how does he know that? Uh, so the doctor asks him how he knew about the machines. And he said, yeah, I used to make these kind of machines, which is true. He used to make this, this certain kind of machine. And so the doctor's like, mm, can, can you make this kind of machine? Can you, can I, have you recreated? And this was to um, do something medically. Uh, and, and so he's tasked with that as well. In another chapter, he talks about if you lose your morals, and here's another incredibly valuable lesson. If you lose your morals, you lose yourself. And he talked about how the German man was weak and would lose his humanity. I, I remember seeing a meme not too long ago. It was just a phrase. It wasn't um, anything particularly compelling with the picture, but it was uh, Jordan Peterson saying, if you think that uh, strong men are a problem, uh, you haven't seen nothing until you've seen what weak men will do. And he's exactly right. Those weak Germans who would just go along with whatever Hitler did. I, I, and that's a, 
you, when you lose your morals, you lose yourself. These these German guards could, could torture, kill children, bash their heads in, and then they could go home and somehow sleep at night, see their own wife and their own children and be okay with what they have done. They became sadistic. The collaborators inside the camp were also sadistic, and they would uh, sell out other prisoners just for a, a, an extra serving of bread or, or something else. Um, he's been beaten, he's been whipped, he's had his nose broken, uh, and yet he continues on. Uh, but he recognizes that he's in a stronger position than where some of them are. And again, he says, if your morals are gone, you go. That's a powerful lesson. So he hatches this plan to escape from Auschwitz. And it's with the help of a, a civilian, a kind civilian named Klaus, uh, who's going to say, okay, look, I'm going to paint a stripe on a drum. We're going to get you in the drum. We'll put it on the very back of the truck. At a certain point, there's a turn in the road, and I'm going to whistle. When I do, you're going to push against the drum and rock it over and get out. Okay, so they do that. They, they put him in a drum. He has a chain to hold it on the inside, and everything goes exactly as planned. Uh, he's placed in the back of the truck halfway between the factory and the camp, and so where they would otherwise have had to walk to. And uh, so uh, the, the, whist the driver whistles. He falls out. The barrel goes down a hill. He rolls down a hill. It's a, it's a kind of a harrowing experience, but he's free. He gets out of the drum, and he goes, and he runs to a local house. He goes to the house for help, uh, and he is there in, in his prisoner's uniform, and he's asking for help, but the man is Polish. He doesn't speak any German. He doesn't speak any French, which Eddie spoke both. Uh, the man goes back into another room, comes back out with a rifle, and starts shooting at him, and he gets shot in the calf, and he's, he gets away, but he realizes to his horror he's not going to survive. If the people in the countryside are not going to help him, he has a better chance of surviving in the camp. He actually sneaks back into the line as the prisoners are coming back into the camp so that he can survive. So he is he sneaks back into Auschwitz because he has a better chance of survival than he had outside it. And he again, here's another lesson. He said, do I hate that man, this this Polish man that shot at him? He says, do I hate that man? No, he was probably just weak and scared. Again, remember that if, if your morals go, you go, okay? If you lose your morals, you lose yourself. Wow. Okay, so this doctor, Dr. Kinderman, removes the bullet uh, with a letter opener without anesthesia, okay? And they actually have to wait. Like, the plan is we're going to wait until these uh, church bells over at a monastery in the distance ring so it's kind of lousy so when you're groaning, nobody hears you. And they pop it out uh, with, a, with a letter opener. And uh, they disinfect it with saliva. The doctor's advice to Eddie was profound and uh, probably saved his life. He said, Eddie, when you, if you want to survive, when you come back from work, rest. Conserve your energy. One hour of rest is two days of survival. Every calorie mattered. So when Eddie is, uh, other people would come back from the work detail and maybe do other things, search for food, which they never found, or try to do other things, he would come back and be very disciplined about resting because he was going to survive. He says he, they were delirious with hunger. One man would sleep talk. 
about uh, uh about delicious meals and delicious food and sleep i mean it was that bad and these people are are legitimately human skeletons now they want all the food that they can possibly eat uh and that includes coffee which is one of the few luxuries they had but they also found out at some point this coffee tastes funny and they found out that the Nazis were putting bromide in the coffee. The bromide was in order to keep the sex drive down, but they put a lot of it in, and it was enough to chemically castrate the men. And so as soon as they found out bromide was going into coffee, they stopped drinking that luxury coffee uh, altogether. Now, that's a good thing, and you'll see why later on. But he says in the title of chapter 10, where there's life, there's hope. And uh, they, they had hope. Because they, they knew that if they just kept going on, they had a chance at surviving. Now, the war at this point is going badly. The Russians are only 20 miles outside Auschwitz and the Nazis are getting worried. Because if you're committing war crimes, it turns out that you don't want the world to know about that. So there's this death march from Auschwitz uh, to get to another camp. 15,000 people die along the way. The temperatures outside are, are minus 20 degrees Celsius. And uh, they would shoot people on site if they stumbled uh, and just, uh, you know, it, it was pretty much the end. So many people dying. Um, Kurt at one point gets so down. Kurt, remember his friend Kurt is so down. He's just like, look, I don't, I don't think I can go on. So Eddie finds Kurt a hiding place. And when he found him a hiding place, the, the place that he found as a hiding place, there were three other people, two or three other people already in that particular place that had slipped away. And, you know, somebody had to seal it back up. So Eddie sealed it up, put or got Kurt in there, sealed it up, and he got back into the line. Uh, and so he never knew if, whether he was going to see Kurt again, but he said his goodbye and he rejoined the others. Uh, he's loaded on these wagons for Buchenwald again, and uh, he's he's surviving so far. But at Buchenwald, he's tapped to be a toolmaker, and he's sent to another camp to work on machines again. That education is paying off again and again and again. He this time he has a sign that he's wearing around him that says, "If he makes seven mistakes, he will be hanged." Now he's working on these precision tool parts uh, that if it was a millimeter of a mistake, the part would be ruined. So he had to be really, really careful with what he was doing. The man in charge uh, at one point, so he has one guard in charge that was very brutal to him. But there's another guard that eventually asks him, wait a minute, your your name is Jaku or Jaku. Uh, are you related to Isidore Jaku? Well, turns out, yes, he, he is. It's, that was his father. And it turns out that that Nazi guard and his father are uh, were a POWs together in World War One, and from that point forward, that that Nazi looked out for him, providing him extra food and and um, trying to make sure that you know just keep an eye on him. Um, of course, he couldn't eat the extra food. He's so emaciated that he couldn't even eat the extra porridge that he was given because it, he just he, his stomach couldn't handle it. He, he gave him salami. He couldn't eat the salami. Like he's starving to death and he can't even eat. Uh, that's how bad shape he's in. Okay, so at this point, the Russians are closing in once again. And uh, the Russians are on one side, the Americans are on the other side, and the Nazis are getting desperate. They march them away, and he sees this drainage pipe, and he thinks, you know, if I can get myself into the drainage pipe, perhaps I'll have a chance. 
And so he slips into the trench. It's freezing water. He, uh, the, the water is moving pretty rapidly around him. Uh, and he, he gets these boards and he puts these boards around him and he, he gets into this drainage pipe and he ha actually fell asleep in this freezing water, which is a terrible, uh, I'm sure, harrowing experience, not knowing whether you're going to wake up. When he wakes up, the boards are full of holes and the boards are full of holes because the Nazis just kind of shot down on either side of the drainage pipe just in case anybody uh, had, a, had the idea of trying to escape. But the boards saved him. And so they're gone. He flees into the countryside and starts to live uh, in caves. He's eating snails. He's eventually so sick, so um, such in such bad shape that he's like, look, I mean, I've got to get back to somebody somewhere or I simply won't make it. And he gets onto the road and he sees a tank and it's an American tank and, and he's saved. And now he's in a hospital and he's waking up like with caring physicians attending to him, trying to help him survive. And, uh, at this point he, he was at a, you know, in the hospital, they told him that he has a very low chance of surviving. And he, he says in that moment, he makes a promise to God, if I live, I'll be an entirely new purpose. I'll live every day to my fullest. Hence the term, the happiest, or the title of the book, The Happiest Man on Earth. Okay, so he's in the hospital for six weeks. He leaves Belgium to look for his family, and out of his 100 relatives, he couldn't find any. And that's it's got to be a, a terribly bleak time. Uh, but at a Jewish um, canteen for Jewish survivors, he finds Kurt. And he's amazed. He found Kurt again. And so it's like he has family again in some some way. Um, the Russians liberated Kurt while the Americans, uh, he was found by the Americans. And and um, he thought, OK, well, you know, we're, we're getting charity in order to survive, but we can't. So he and Kurt find business. Uh, Kurt was a cabinet maker. And again, he's a machinist. So pretty soon he's the foreman of a factory because he he had skills and and he used them. And he uh he gets gainfully employed and, and rises in the ranks. And he's uh, soon he's kind of feeling bad that he actually has money compared to his deplorable uh, conditions before that. And he finds his sister. The only member of his family that survives was his sister of, of 100 relatives. And um, so he, he and his sister are reunited. And um, he just it's just an amazing thing that he has something and he has prosperity again. And he has but he. At this point, he doesn't feel like he wants to stay in Europe. Europe is not a home. Europe is a torture to him. So he, uh, while he's in charge of things, and he has a contract for the factory, but Belgium would only let him stay at six months at a time, and then you have to renew his papers. So he's starting to think about elsewhere, and um, Kurt finds a girl. He, he marries her, and they move off to um, Israel. And he meets a woman named Flora. And uh, she um, she survived the war by, you know, hiding under an assumed name as well. And she was not taken to a, a death camp. Uh, and he and Flora get married. And uh, mercifully, he stopped drinking that poison water, uh, poison coffee at Auschwitz. And they have two kids together. His first child is when he's holding his first child, he makes a promise to himself that he's going to smile every day. And that's what he's doing. He's just going to he's just going to be happy. And he said this, quote, I realized I was the luckiest man on earth. I made the promise from that day until the rest of my life. I would be happy, polite, helpful and kind. I would smile. 
And in another passage, he says, here is what I learned. Happiness does not fall from the sky. It is in your hands. Happiness comes from inside yourself and from the people you love. And if you're healthy and happy, you're a millionaire. And happiness is the only thing in the world that doubles when you share it. My wife doubled my happiness. My friendship with Kurt doubled my happiness. And as for you, my new friend, I hope your happiness doubles too. Okay, so so that's I, you can't help but like the guy. By the way, he has a TED Talk. Just look him up by his name, Eddie Jaku, J-A-K-U, and TED Talk, and you'll see him tell much of his story. Uh, okay, so back to the story. He doesn't want to stay in Belgium. Kurt has mo- moved to Israel. His sister moves to Australia, and he and Flora follow. Uh, he works in the medical machinery factory, and then he opens his own service station because, again, he's very handy and mechanical. And later he gets into real estate, and he retires in his 90s, okay, with Flora at his side every day. He said, small acts of kindness last longer than a lifetime. This lesson that kindness and generosity and faith in your fellow man are more important than money is the first and greatest lesson that my father ever taught me. Wow. Okay, so there's a little bit of an epilogue. Their their wedding anniversary is ironically on April 20th. That's Hitler's birthday. And he said, we're still here. Hitler's down there. This is really the best revenge. And it's only the reven- it's the only revenge that I'm interested in to be the happiest man on earth. In his TED talk, he said, uh, you know, I'm, I, I don't hate anyone. And it, look, it would be understandable if he hated people, right? Particularly those that tortured him and took away his family and took away his pride and his dignity and everything. Okay. He said, hate hurts everyone, including the person that's doing the hating. It destroys them too. And so he refuses to do it. So he and his wife are married for 75 years. He has children, two children. He has grandchildren and he has great grandchildren. And he died on October 11th, 2021, just a few weeks ago at 101 years of age. The remarkable lessons in Eddie Jacku's life. I just, it it was well worth doing an episode on that once I stumbled over this. And, um, as I was reading, I thought of a couple other things. The first was a quotation for contemplation, which comes from Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was um, a psychologist who also endured uh, a Nazi concentration camp. And, and he said something very similar to what Eddie said. Viktor Frankl said, Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. Now, as a Christian, I'm looking at that and going, yeah, you know, that's true. God is love. And, and but that's not what he was meaning. He was talking about just that relationship, that friendship. And while it's true on multiple levels, Eddie was also talking about that friendship being just such a, a, a lifesaver for him. And I think that's true anywhere in friendship, in relationship, in leadership, anywhere. Relationship is is the, the fast way to protection. In fact, look, the... Um, uh, suffix s-h-i-p anywhere you see that that means relationship so citizenship is relationship to the state friendship relation between friends leadership is relation between leader and follower and so that's right there is this uh, salvation through love and in love and that's through relationship okay 
Um, so that's the first lesson that I took. And then there was another thought that I had, and, and I'll, I'll put this in the notes below, so that uh, the link uh, below. There was this other, uh, I can't remember his name right now, it'll come to me later, but this man who uh, was a businessman, he was in Czechoslovakia, and he's seeing what's happening to the Jews. And he gets a number of children out of um, Czechoslovakia before Hitler had it closed off. He saved, I think, six north of 600 children. Uh, 660 or 640, something like that. And he's very sad. He's beating himself up because he couldn't get 250 others out that he was trying to get out, but he got a bunch of them out. Then in the 1980s, I think it was about 1988, there was a, a British television show, something about This Is Your Life, that reunited him with some of the um, some of the children that he had saved. And it was such a touching story. Okay, so... I'm going to stop there because I'm pretty much out of time, but there are so many touching lessons here that are applicable to everybody, but they're also applicable as a leader. And, and I just want you to think through these lessons. Think about the value of the education, the leadership of the father, the way the father uh, handled the crisis on the way to Auschwitz, the way that his father's lessons impressed him. That's leadership compounding through the generations and being passed on from father to son to children and grandchildren. Um, think about the way that uh, friendship helped him survive and how relationship is, is the key to success in pretty much everything. All right, so I'm going to stop belaboring that. Thank you for your time. Uh, I would encourage you to go find the book and read the book, at least watch the TED Talk. And thank you for your time and listening. And I hope that helps you become the kind of leader that you would want to follow. Thank you.